So, Exodus chapter 11. First, let's hear God's word as I read it aloud, and then we'll pray and ask for his help and blessing as we study it together. Exodus 11. This is God's holy word. Take heed how you hear it. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Would you pray with me, friends? Lord, once again, we bow before you. This is your word, and we need it. We need it more than food. We need it more than water. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we come to this, your word, as its pages are spread before us, like Israel came for that manna in the wilderness. And we come for this, our daily bread. Our souls need you. Our souls need to be nourished from your word. They need the grace of Christ as he comes to us in all the scripture. So meet with us here, Lord God, as we give ourselves over to this study of your word. Give us an illuminated understanding and our, illumine our understanding, illumine our minds as we do give ourselves to the study of your word this night. We bless you for it and we ask it in Jesus' name. Over. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we have seen over and over and over again throughout our study of Exodus, one of the, one of the themes that keeps cropping up and popping up over as we've studied through Exodus, and particularly as we've studied through these plagues, we've seen God display his sovereignty and his glory. Now, of course, God's glory is a, a theme you can find all over the scriptures. That's one of those sort of, it can be, if we're not careful, throwaway words particularly in reform circles, God's glory, God's sovereignty, it's all over the place. And of course, we are people who love and affirm God's sovereignty. Yes, that's true, but let us not become 
um, shall we say, a, a taken-for-granted uh, phrase that we just toss out there. But truly, it does display and manifest itself in particular ways in these particular passages. And God's glory in salvation through judgment is one of those mega-themes that we will see all over Holy Scripture, and we see it tonight in this tenth plague, or this act of judgment as it's announced in chapter 11. It's, it's promised, it's threatened, but it doesn't occur until chapter 12, when Israel is in the midst of worship on the night of the Passover. But indeed, this tenth plague is the culmination of God's judgment against Egypt. And in it, he will display his own nature and his own name in a way beyond that which he has displayed himself before. You may have picked up on this as we were reading through the text just a moment ago, but if you look there at the first three verses, that's essentially a short intro, uh, giving the context of this particular announcement of judgment. And then in verses 4 through 8, the plague is actually announced in the presence of Pharaoh before his face. We see that in verse 8. Uh, Back in chapter 10, there at the end, as we looked at it this morning, verses 28 and 29, remember what it said. Verse 28, then Pharaoh said to him, Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Well, before Moses walked out of the throne room, it seems that God arrested him. He stopped him and said, wait. Before you go, I've got one more announcement that you must give to Pharaoh. And that's what happens here at the beginning of chapter 11. God arrests Moses' attention. Yet one plague more. Yet one plague more, Moses. You go and announce this to stubborn king Pharaoh. So there we have that in verses 4 through 8. And finally, in verses 9 and 10, we have a summary explanation for all of God's dealings with Pharaoh in all the plagues. And so that's our basic outline as we study chapter 11 tonight. God's glory in exalting Moses. We see that in verses 1 through 3. And then God's glory in humiliating Egypt. We see that in verses 4 through 8. And then finally, God's glory in salvation through judgment. We see that in verses 9 through 10. Indeed, God's glory is the, a meta-theme that we see all over Scripture, but it's really the primary theme that we see here in chapter 11. And so God's glory extrapolated in three particular ways as it gives guidance to our study of the text tonight. And of course, that third point is that great mega theme that we see all over Scripture, but particularly in this section of Exodus, God's glory in salvation through judgment. So first, let's take a look at verses 1 through 3, God's glory in exalting Moses. Here, we see the announcement of one last blow against Egypt. And we see an interesting directive given by God to Moses, to the children of Israel, to plunder the Egyptians on their way out, to receive from them gold and silver and valuables. God gives a prophecy of what's going to take place, and it certainly does take place. So he's glorified, of course, in the fulfillment of prophecy. He predicts something's going to happen, and when they exit Egypt in a short amount of time, when they when, they, when the exodus occurs and they plunder the Egyptians, it does happen. So God's word does come true. He's glorified in that way. But we also see him glorified in the way that he is exalting Moses. And, and think of that with a, a little e exalted. Not, not capital E exalted the way God alone is exalted, but little e exalted. That is, God is raising the esteem that the Egyptians have for Israel and raising the esteem that they have especially for Moses. And you see that described there. 
in verse 3. And it comes at their own expense, and it comes at their own humiliation, which we'll see more so in the second point. But let's think on that for a few moments. Note verse 1. One more plague I will bring. And what's the result? Uh, note note the, repu- the repetition of the phrases. He will let you go. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. That's how it's rendered in the ESV translation. He's not going to drive out some of you. He's not going to drive out most of you. He's going to drive out every last one of you, Israel. My, my, how the tables have turned. Remember, Moses comes to Pharaoh over and over and over again as he's been doing this for what? Weeks? Possibly months? We, we have a, a rough chronology that we can put together based on the, the harvest calendars of Egypt and given how the crops were devastated a few plagues ago and there's that little agricultural note that's included there for us that gives us an indicator of uh, barley harvest and wheat harvest and so forth. So if the Passover occurred roughly around the time of late March or April as it does and if, that, if the harvesting was happening sometime roughly in January or February... Moses and Pharaoh have been going through this face-off for three or four months now. Over and over and over, Moses has gone before Pharaoh to confront him and to demand of Pharaoh that he let God's people go. And over and over again, we are told Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he refused to let the people of Israel go. And now, now, God has orchestrated all things to the point that Pharaoh himself is going to be begging, begging for Israel to go, to leave his land when it's all said and done. Truly, how the tables have turned. Not, as, not only is he going to let them go, not as he, not as he, he's not going to hesitantly let them go, reluctantly let them go. He's going to drive them out, every last one of them, begging that they would get out of his presence. Now notice also, if you look at verse 2, for the first time in the stories and the recountings of these plagues, Moses is instructed to speak to the people of Israel. Now, he had spoken to the children of Israel before the plagues began, but during the plagues, at least as what's recorded for us in Holy Scripture, the focus is on this exchange, this, this war of words between Moses and Pharaoh, and really, of course, ultimately between God and Pharaoh. There had not been any recorded dialogue between Moses and the people of Israel as all these plagues are raining down on Egypt. But here... In the threatening of this final plague, now Moses turns and directs his attention to them. Uh, The so-called plundering of the Egyptians is described here in verse 2. Now, of course, we saw a a mini prophecy of this earlier. Think back with me a number of weeks, maybe months ago, to the very early portions of Exodus, figuratively, in the way Moses' mother was paid from the coffers of the royal family to care for and nurse her own infant son. Do you remember that? Pharaoh's daughter discovers baby Moses in the basket in the river. Moses' sister is nearby. Pharaoh's daughter is not quite ready to care for the infant, so Moses' mother is able to rear and nurture baby Moses. She's paid from the treasury of Egypt to care for her own son. Well, that's something of a mini-prophecy of this happening. This plundering of the Egyptians that would come however many years later is actually more than just a fulfillment of that picture prophecy in the life of Moses' mother, it's actually a fulfillment of something that God had said to Abram 400 and some odd years ago in Genesis chapter 15. Remember that night when the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passed between the slaughtered animal pieces? God told Abram that same night, 
chapter 15 of Genesis, verses 13 and 14, God says, Know for certain, Abram, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflictor for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Here we are, some 400 years later, and God instructs Moses to tell the people to ask their neighbors, and as they leave, to give them gold and silver, and the people of Egypt do what's more. Now, when do you plunder someone? Well, you plunder someone after you have conquered them, right? After winning a a great battle, armies go out in the field after they are victorious in battle, and they plunder Well, the children of Israel are being told to go to their neighbors and not even have to exercise violence against them, but just ask them for gold and silver. Thus, Israel plundered the Egyptians, Exodus 12, verse 36 will tell us. It's a sign of the total conquest of the sovereign God over impotent Pharaoh and hapless Egypt. God, their warrior and defender, does the fighting for them and brings the devastation upon them. There's no violent warring that has to be exercised on the part of the Egyptians. They simply ask the Egyptians, hey, give us your valuables and your treasure and your gold and your silver. And so they do. It's interesting. Even in thinking about how marvelous God is, is, how marvelously God is glorified in the fulfillment of that prophecy, how marvelously God is glorified in the shaming and the embarrassing of impotent Pharaoh and his theological system, it is interesting But there's also a warning embedded there for us. You see, look how God will provide for Israel in in supplying them for their journey ahead. He provides for them clothing. We're told that in chapter 12. Silver and gold for various metallurgic uses, maybe perhaps for trading as they're out wandering as the nomads that they will be doing. Good gifts that he provides for them. Good gifts, ultimately, from the Lord's hand, from God's hand, as he cares for them and provides for them. But... Like all good things that the Lord provides for us, these good things can end up being perverted by us, twisted and misused for evil ends. God meant to supply them these things for their care, but it stands to reason, I think, when we approach Exodus 32, gold is melted down to fashion the golden calf, that vain idol. Well, where do you think that gold came from that they had to melt down to fashion into that blasphemous idol? A few chapters later in Exodus 35, some of the things that were used to build the tabernacle of God were told there in Exodus 35, verse 22, all sorts of gold objects were brought for the fashioning and making of the tabernacle instruments. Same things, gold, same things but two entirely different purposes that we see in Exodus 32 versus Exodus 35. One thing is rendered to be a blasphemous, vain, idolatrous image that insults God, their Redeemer. A couple chapters later, that same gold is rendered to be an instrument and a use and a tool in the tabernacle, to, in the instituted worship that God himself handed down to them that he is pleased with. Gold, good gifts from God's hand that they received from the, from the plundering of Egypt. Good gifts from God's hand that we receive all the time, brothers and sisters. Money, jobs, possessions, careers, influence, talent, skill sets, fine things, blessings from his hand in many cases. But take care how we use these things as a stewardship from his hand. How often, 
How often money gets leveraged for nefarious purposes. Bribery. Pressure to get one's way. How often positions of influence are used to exploit others. How often fine talents get employed toward sinful ends, yes? James makes the same point about the human tongue, doesn't he? A wonderful instrument of our body for communication. A wonderful instrument to sound forth the praises of our Maker. With it, James says, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Point being, take care, friends. Take care. Good things from the Father's hand. How they are utilized. Lest otherwise good and godly things get appropriated for wicked purposes. Let us heed the example and the warning as it comes to us from Israel of old. Well, then as we come to verse 3, we are told essentially what is one further ingredient, one further amplification of the humiliation of Pharaoh, this arrogant, foolish man who dared to defy the living God. It's not enough that his livestock is decimated in, an old, in, a, in a previous plague. It's not enough that his water source is poisoned. It's not enough that his people's food source is depleted. It's not enough that his city is lying in ruin with rotting animal corpses filling the streets and with his people miserable with festering boils and blinding darkness. This man is thoroughly embarrassed. And now his own people are starting to peel away from him. They won't go anywhere physically, but their loyalties are fizzling. One can imagine that up till now Moses has been viewed as the instrument of their misery. Surely if we were in Egypt's shoes, we would look at Moses that way. That we would view him and all of Israel hatefully, like a scourge in our nation. Surely our good king Pharaoh will protect us. Surely Pharaoh will, will employ his might. Ra, bless Pharaoh. But now, verse 3, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, meaning Israel. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Now even the Egyptians are starting to esteem Moses. And even Pharaoh's own servants are looking at him favorably. And more and more, Pharaoh is being left alone. Every favor that he has, every alliance that he has, every supporter that he has, slowly but surely being stripped away and peeled away to the point that even his own people are turning against him, at least in their hearts and minds. God is bringing Pharaoh slowly but surely to the point where Pharaoh, in his arrogance, will face down God and face down his wrath, and he'll do it utterly alone. And it will be his undoing. Now God's wonders have been brought before his eyes, and his, his people have come to a, perhaps a, a grudging respect for Moses and a grudging respect for Israel. And still Pharaoh is unmoved. Surely one has to wonder, and, and maybe the Egyptians were, had it not been for Pharaoh... What would have come of these plagues in Egypt? What would have happened if he had yielded to God's warnings, if he had yielded to Moses' entreaties? Would these things have happened to us? What havoc, what, what spiritual havoc did the hardness of heart, the hardness of the heart of Pharaoh reap upon his own people because he would not repent? Have you noticed how the Lord has moved everybody out of his way? Who is the one responsible for this devastating misery that's about to befall Egypt and this tenth plague? Who is, who is the chief, the great chief of rebellion against the rule of Almighty Jehovah? Thou art the man, Pharaoh. 
the prophet Nathan might have said. Moses gains favor in the eyes of Egypt to Pharaoh's shame and to God's glory. And in doing so, God is preparing the battlefield. He's clearing the decks to deal the death blow against the one who opposes his people's good. So that's the first thing that we see, God's glory in exalting Moses. But then secondly, we come to verses 4 through 8, God's glory in humiliating Egypt. Now, as we mentioned a moment ago, Moses was about to walk out of Pharaoh's presence, following Pharaoh's injunction there from the end of chapter 10, get out of here, get out of my presence, away from my face, I don't want to see you again. But then God says, hang on, hold up, there's one more plague you need to threaten against him. And so Moses is instructed, perhaps perhaps even receiving this revelation in the presence of Pharaoh. Who knows? But in any case, he declares it to Pharaoh, and we are told there in verse 8 that he departs Pharaoh in hot anger. Pharaoh will not let Israel out of Egypt. And so what does God announce? You won't let my people go? Fine. I'm coming to Egypt. Now, friends, that is not a happy announcement. This is another one of those meta-themes or those major theological principles that we see all over Scripture. God's presence is always a two-edged sword. God's presence to his beloved people, to those who've been reconciled to him, then it is a precious and glad and sweet and comforting thing. But on the other edge of that sword, God's presence to his enemies, well, there is a thing of fearsome terror. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, verse 31. Right? To pass over a people, like God does for Israel in the next chapter, is a thing of mercy. He relents from visiting them with judgment. But for God to pass through, well, for Egypt, that is a horrifying prospect. Note verse 4. About midnight I will go in the midst of Egypt. This is another one of those instances where there's a polemical angle that the Lord is taking, uh, taking another jab at the Egyptian deities, as many of the commentators point out. Remember Ra, the sun god, he was their great god, their chief deity. And nighttime, in, in Egyptian understanding, in Egyptian theology, nighttime was a picture of the battle between darkness and death and chaos, those elements, against Ra, the sun god, who was a god of ordered stability. And midnight was the pinnacle of that darkness. Midnight was the most terrifying time of the day for the Egyptians. And God says, that's exactly when I'm going to come and visit you. I'm coming at the point when you yourself recognize yourselves to be most vulnerable and when your God, Ra, is at his most impotent and weakest, right at midnight. And then in verse 5, the curse is announced. All the Egyptian firstborn shall die. Not just the humans, do you notice? Even their cattle, God will strike down the firstborn, from the greatest to the least, from the most noble and rich and powerful and wealthy, from Pharaoh's household all the way down to the slave girl. Verse 6 tells us that the anguish of this event would be unparalleled in Egyptian history and experience. And there's an irony here. Look at verse 6. There shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt. Now Moses, as he's been writing the book of Exodus for us, he's been telling us about several cries that have gone up in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, the people of God cried out for deliverance under the burden of their oppression, and God heard them. 
Later in chapter 5, verse 15, the people of God cried out to Pharaoh for relief from their burden and oppression. And Pharaoh turned a deaf ear to them. Now here's the awful tragedy. The sin of Pharaoh has come back to visit him. God's people cried out to Pharaoh. He turned a deaf ear and made their slavery all the more miserable. God's people cry out to the Lord. He hears them. He responds. He raises up Moses. And now 400 years of oppression are about to be ended in a cataclysmic way for Egypt. And yet, the Egyptians will cry out to their gods. No one will hear them. No one will hear them. This cry of anguish will be met by a deafening silence and no help. Just as Egypt had done to Israel, turning a deaf ear to their cries, now God will do to Egypt. In verse 7, Moses uses a figure of speech to emphasize how completely protected the children of Israel are going to be. It says, not even a dog will growl. You know, sometimes you'll, you'll surprise a dog and the dog will give you that, that stay-off-my-turf kind of growl at you, a kind of warning. Well, it's being said here that not even a dog will growl against the children of Israel as if it doesn't even recognize it as his own turf. They have free reign to go and walk and leave as they please. And that may be yet even another polemical backhanded slap, another little shot against another Egyptian god because the god of death in Egypt was a god called Anubis. And he, Anubis, had the form of a canine, of a dog. And here Moses says, not even a dog will growl against my people. I, the Lord, will visit Egypt with death, sweeping and awful in the dead of night when your chief sun god is off napping and your god of death, the dog, is leashed by me. He can't do anything. And what he does, I say, Your dogs won't even raise a noise against my people when I roll through town. And you will know, I am the Lord. And by the way, beginning there in verse 7, Moses is pointedly directing these words at Pharaoh. God and Moses are are at this this point putting the rhetorical finger right into Pharaoh's sternum. Verse 7, that you, and that you there in Hebrew is singular, you, Pharaoh, may know that the Lord makes the distinction between Egypt and Israel. And again in verse 8, Moses continues by saying, God will make Egypt as it were to be servants, to come and to beg Israel to leave. (laughs) Can you imagine? Here's Moses in the house of the world's most powerful monarch, and he says to him, man, your servants are going to come to me. And they're going to bow down to me. And they're going to beg me to leave. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. You think you're the great potentate of the world's greatest empire? Buddy, even your servants and slaves are going to come and bow down before me. This Hebrew prophet that you so despise. Layer upon layer upon layer of shame and humiliation and degradation that God levels against Pharaoh. And then notice the language there. It's not Pharaoh, interestingly, but Moses who leaves in hot anger. Now, why would that be? You'd think if anyone left the room in hot anger, it might be Pharaoh. Well, some commentators have suggested that it was in response to Pharaoh's threat. That even after all these warnings, there's no repentance on the part of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh there at the end of chapter 10 threatens, I will kill you if you show your face again. And Moses is angry about it. Other commentators have suggested that Moses is angry not so much because of the threat against him, 
but on account of Pharaoh's intractable, stubborn, unrepentant heart. This man would rather bring down a nation. He would rather kill the firstborn of his people, his own child included. He would rather do that than bow the knee and submit to the demands of the God of Israel. And Moses' anger is hot because he sees a sinner about to bring down judgment on his own head. You ever find yourself in that kind of situation? Where you go to someone and you go and you go and you beg and you beg and you plead and you reason and you point out evidence after evidence to someone and they just won't be persuaded. No matter how much persuading and imploring you try to do with someone, they just won't believe. No matter how earnestly you entreat them, they just won't turn from their sin. They won't turn to Christ by faith. They're bound to bring down judgment on their own head because of nothing but sheer pride and stubbornness. And you just want to grab them by the shoulders and shake some sense into them. But it would be to no avail. And you almost, you almost storm away from the conversation in a huff. You're so frustrated with that reality. I don't know, but I wonder if something like that is what Moses is experiencing with Pharaoh. The stubbornness of his heart. Do you not know, man, what's about to happen to you? Do you not know if you would just turn and relent from your sheer pride how you could avoid all of this? And you won't. I wonder if that's something what Moses is experiencing in this moment. And that brings us to our third and final point. So God's glory in exalting Moses, God's glory in humiliating Egypt, and then one last thing, verses 9 and 10, God's glory in salvation through judgment. We see here Pharaoh dead in sin and dead and deaf to warning. Remember what was said there in chapter 10, verse 28? Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. So negotiations are now over. Look at verse 9. Wonders will be done in Pharaoh's sight. Verse 9 of chapter 11. Wonders will be done in Pharaoh's sight, and still he will not relent. And this reminds us, friends, just as we were thinking a few seconds ago, as try as we might, much as we'd like to shake our loved one and shake our friend and say, what is wrong with you? Would you just repent and turn and believe? Repentance is not produced merely by showing a person the terror of judgment. Did you all ever grow up with those judgment houses or those hell houses that some churches would put on around the Halloween holiday? Right? God has shown Pharaoh hell. He's shown Pharaoh hell. He's rained down wrathful hell upon him all low these weeks and months. And there's no repentance. Because repentance, like faith, is a gift of God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And it is not one that is commonly bestowed. And so we see here the lunacy of sin. And we see here the hardness of an unrepentant heart. As Pharaoh sees the judgment of God displayed before him. And he will not turn. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Few are those who find that path which leads to everlasting life. As we mentioned in the beginning, chapter 11 is an announcement of this plague, but the actual carrying out, the implementation of this plague is not till chapter 12. And of course, in chapter 12, what's happening? Well, the Passover feast. The people of Israel worshiping and feasting and gathered around these sacrificial lambs. It's a picture of mercy in the midst of judgment, and it's one more iteration of that theme. God's glory in salvation through judgment, right? Egypt, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Israel, redeemed, ransomed, delivered. 
Now, of course, the Passover lamb of Exodus 12 is meant to point us to the lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. But once again, on Calvary's cross, God's glory is displayed in salvation through judgment, where the judgment of God fell upon Christ Jesus, he stricken, smitten, and afflicted, so that judgment would pass over you, Christians, so that you might be ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven forever. Isn't it interesting how much exposure the people of Egypt had to the God of the Hebrews? They'd begun to believe in, in, in some sense, not in a saving way, but in an intellectual ascent kind of way. They'd begun to believe in the one true God. They'd seen his miracles. Goodness, they'd even found themselves holding esteem for his prophet Moses and growing in respect for his people Israel. We see even Pharaoh taking the name of the Lord, not just God, but his own covenant name, the name Yahweh, on his lips, acknowledging him. Egypt has seen and beheld the wonders of the one true God, yet when Israel leaves town, how few Egyptians actually leave with them. Some do, yes, but most don't. Having been exposed to the things of God, they opt to remain with the reproach of Egypt and her gods. How often is this the case, sadly, with so many in the visible church? There's much familiarity with Christ. How many friends we have, how many, how many loved ones we have, having tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They, they've evidenced this, this passing interest in Christianity, but they never ultimately place their trust savingly in Christ. There's a warning there, yet I also hear, hope you hear there's a note of hope. Take heed don't be like Pharaoh. You say repentance cannot be manufactured, and it can't. It is a gift of God. But, dear friends, if there is any inkling, any at all, any inkling in the faintest recesses of your heart to cry out to God for mercy, then do it, and do it this very night. It's his mercy that put that instinct in there in the first place. So do it. Do it now. Cry out to mercy. Cry out for mercy to Christ Jesus. Today, while it is still called today, Scripture says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts against him like those Israelite generations of old or like Pharaoh right here. God will be glorified. So, dear friend, find yourself covered in the shed blood of that true Passover lamb, God's crucified and risen son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for you so that such curse and judgment would never fall upon you, but that you might find, himself, might find yourselves in his warm embrace. You might find yourselves ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, that you might know the pleasures that are forevermore at his right hand that can only be found in the green pastures of the God of Israel and of his son, Jesus Christ. Bless God for his word to us tonight. Would you pray with me? Oh, truly the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how they are past finding out. Lord and God, cause our hearts to wonder and cause our hearts to love and praise you and break us of our own hard-heartedness so that we might repent, we might worship, and we might serve. These things we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>